This is Monday Morning QB, June 7th, 2021. I'm Askiya Muhammad. Today on the show, the Supreme Court takes up LGBTQ plus rights and family equality, closing the racial wealth gap. Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu may be following the Trump playbook on handling defeat. New COVID-19 hate crimes legislation, plus a local expansion among the National Labor Organizing Revival. Stay with us. Last week marked the first day of Pride Month, and many are continuing to celebrate the liberation, diversity, and beauty of the LGBTQ plus community. Yet, even in the midst of these celebrations, there have been constant attacks on LGBTQ rights. From 2021 being recorded as a record-breaking year for anti-trans legislation to continued hate crimes, it's clear that LGBTQ rights are still a point of contention in the United States. And right now, this contention has come to a head in the Supreme Court case, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. Amara Evering reports. Today, Supreme Court justices are sprinting to the finish line to finalize their decisions on what many are viewing as landmark cases. One of these many cases has caught the eye of child welfare experts, faith leaders, and LGBTQ plus advocates alike. This case is Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia. Though some claim this case is about religious liberty and the First Amendment, many believe that this case is actually about LGBTQ rights. By the end of this month, which of course just happens to be Pride Month, we will see where the majority conservative Supreme Court stands. But in the meantime, I spoke with Shelby Day, Chief Policy Officer at the organization Family Equality about this case. I asked her to break down what Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia is really about. At its heart, in this case, Catholic Social Services, which is a taxpayer-funded foster care agency in Philadelphia, is claiming in a case currently before the U.S. Supreme Court that it has a constitutional right to exclude families based on its religious beliefs. Specifically, it's unwilling to license same-sex couples as foster parents. So basically, the foster agency, Catholic Social Services, was doing contract work for the city of Philadelphia. Their job was essentially to place foster children with qualified foster parents, but the Catholic Social Services, also called the CSS, wasn't allowing same-sex couples to adopt. After the city of Philadelphia found out, they swiftly canceled their contract with the CSS. And well, the Catholic Social Services wasn't too pleased about this and ended up taking the city to court. Many have presented this case as a fight between religious expression and LGBTQ family equality. But Day believes that it may not be so black and white, that you can in fact have both at the same time. They can have religious beliefs. They can follow in accordance with those religious beliefs, but it does not give them an, an exemption from generally applicable neutral laws that are applied to everyone the same to perform government functions. We all have a First Amendment right to exercise our religion freely. 
And this case does not inhibit that right. What this case is about, again, is a taxpayer-funded agency voluntarily entering into a contract to provide government services on behalf of the government and it being held to the same requirements and standard as all other contractors. That's what's at stake here. So religious freedom doesn't need to come at the expense of others. And this is one of the reasons why Philadelphia has a non-discrimination policy in place. Like many cities and states, Philadelphia prohibits all such agencies from discriminating against potential foster and adoptive parents for reasons based on their sexual orientation or other characteristics that are completely unrelated to their ability to care for a child. And these policies are designed to help ensure that kids who've been removed from their homes and placed in government care have access to every available qualified family who's ready and willing to care for them. And this is especially important in the context of our foster care system. I think the first reason this case is significant is there's a crisis in the child welfare system. There are currently over 420,000 youth in foster care across the country, and there's a shortage of homes to place them in. And heartbreakingly, over 20,000 kids a year age out of foster care without being provided a family and a support system. And Day has seen this happen herself, children not being adopted at all because their potential foster parents were denied on the basis of their sexual orientation. One same-sex couple who expressed interest in fostering and adopting a nine-year-old boy who was in care and who was available, they were turned away because they're a same-sex couple. And it really kind of hit them in the heart and they continued to worry about and think about that child and wonder what happened to him. And up until the time that we filed our brief, which was five years later, that same boy was still in the child welfare system. So then he was a 14-year-old boy who was still listed as available for adoption. And what they asked is, does that child even know there was a family who wanted him? And that wasn't the only time that this happened. We also highlighted at least two other families who were willing to foster to adopt a sibling group. And both of those siblings were older in age, so categorically harder to place and harder to place together. And they were turned away, kept apart, and the children remained in the system as far as they know. And those are things that don't have to happen and that shouldn't be happening. As long as there are kids in care who need homes, we should be allowing any qualified, willing, and able foster and adoptive family to serve as families for these kids. And children like those siblings, who are categorically harder to place because of their age or circumstance, are actually more likely to be adopted by those in the LGBTQ community. Same-sex couples are seven times more likely than different sex couples to foster or adopt. And historically, gay men and lesbians have been more willing to adopt harder to place kids, such as older kids and those with special needs. And so when you're talking about an agency like Catholic Social Services turning away qualified parents because they're LGBTQ, it reduces the size of the pool of available families for kids who need homes. And there's already a shortage. It also decreases the diversity within that pool of available homes for affirming placements for kids in care. And for many children, especially children who identify as LGBTQ, a diverse pool of eligible families is essential. LGBTQ youth 
are overrepresented in our child welfare system. Though these children enter the welfare system for similar reasons as other youth, in many cases, these children have been rejected, neglected, physically, sexually, and or emotionally abused when those in their family suspected or learned about their identity. About 26% of LGBTQ youth are forced from their homes because of conflicts around their identity. So it's no surprise that a child who identifies as LGBT may also potentially want to be paired with a family that could directly relate to their experience. Young people have already oftentimes suffered rejection, many times based on their sexual orientation and gender identity, have experienced different forms of trauma, um, and they need loving, supportive placements. We have long worked with former foster youth, who many of whom are LGBTQ youth, who experienced discrimination in the system, who experienced higher rates statistically, the mistreatment, disrupted placement, multiple placements, aging out. And many of them have stepped up and said, I just wanted an affirming family. Or had I had an affirming family who just accepted me for who I was, provided me a supportive and loving place, whether it was a temporary home or permanent home, that's what I needed. Children don't get to choose which foster agency they're placed in. So if an agency does not allow LGBTQ parents to adopt, then a child who identifies as LGBTQ may be less likely to be placed in a home with a caregiver that understands their experience and more generally, other children, if they're LGBTQ or not, may have less foster parents in general seen as eligible to adopt them. This is essentially what's at stake in the case of Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. A ruling in favor of Philadelphia would affirm that state and local governments can establish and enforce non-discrimination requirements and ensure that there's a larger, more diverse pool of foster and adoptive parents. If the court rules in favor of Catholic social services, the implications really can range from very narrow, applying specifically to this case, to something much, much more broad. A more broad ruling in favor of Catholic social services as they're requesting could have dire consequences for foster youth. It would reduce the number of available homes, could block kinship placements. So a child being placed with a relative who's LGBTQ or single or other member of a religious minority. And it could potentially allow agencies to discriminate against LGBTQ and religious minority youth directly. A broader ruling could even go beyond the child welfare context and allow discrimination in other government contracted public services, such as job training programs, food assistance, emergency shelters, healthcare services, early childhood education, and more. But even more so, we should be thinking about the implication that this decision may have on youth. We had even non-LGBTQ youth, young people, who had spent time in the system and said, I just wanted a family to love me. I don't care if it was one parent or two. I don't care if it was an LGBTQ person or a straight person. I just wanted a family. And some of these are kids who aged out of the system. There's a young person with lived experience, Weston Charles Gallo, who also recently testified before Congress. He talks about the trauma he suffered in the child welfare system and how his two gay dads who brought him into a family as an older youth and all of a sudden he had six siblings basically saved his life, that he was on the verge of, of suicide. He was really suffering the ills that many young people, especially LGBTQ young people in the system face. And it saved his life. 
That was Shelby Day, Chief Policy Officer at Family Equality. To learn more or get involved, please visit familyequality.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. As millions took to the city streets last year to protest racism, pressure grew on elected officials to craft anti-racist policy. One policy target of this resurgent Black Lives Matter movement is the racial wealth gap. And perhaps in a signal of the movement's power, President Joe Biden announced a rough plan last week to shrink the wealth gap between white and black families. Much of the Biden proposal focuses on transforming physical infrastructure from highways to housing in order to meet racial justice demands. Chris Banker-Drowns reports. Last year's resurgent movement may have initially focused on combating police brutality, but it quickly expanded to confront racism across society, including in the economy. Biden's plans to tackle racism attempt to match the breadth of the movement's demands, but he hasn't satisfied everybody. Many activists are calling for student loan debt forgiveness to be added to existing provisions in his racial wealth gap plans on entrepreneurship and infrastructure. But even without meeting every demand, Biden's plan could make a dent in the racial wealth gap, where the average white family owns several times the wealth of the average black family. Yona Freemark is a senior research associate at the Urban Institute, and he explains why home ownership gaps between white and black families drives the broader wealth gap. Equity in one's home is actually the biggest component of wealth for most low, moderate, and middle-income people who have ownership of a home, right? Most people in that income range don't have very much money in stocks, bonds, that kind of thing on, on Wall Street. They have most of their equity in the home that they own themselves. With homeownership gaps as wide as 50 percentage points in some cities, Black families face greater risk of eviction and lesser opportunities to build wealth. Biden's plan addresses the homeownership gap through a collection of different programs, including a neighborhood homes tax credit that would help fund renovations that increase value for existing black homeowners. The provision even includes anti-gentrification components to ensure prospective home buyers don't bid up prices too much. While Freemark says concentrated poverty is a more widespread problem, he thinks gentrification can be tackled in the places like Washington, D.C., where it is endemic. I'm not entirely sure that the federal government is going to be very effective in doing this, simply because of the fact that most of these policies need to be undertaken at the local level because they are very spatially localized. Gentrification is, is something that does not occur everywhere. It occurs in very specific places. So local governments might be better suited to take lead on some provisions, like anti-gentrification policy, or efforts to reduce exclusionary zoning. The federal government could provide supportive funding, as Biden proposes, to incentivize local policy changes. But Yona Freemark is concerned with that funding incentive approach, which creates carrots for good behavior 
but lacks the sticks needed to punish bad policy. My biggest concern with that approach of using carrots only is that it does not actually do much to encourage communities that are wealthy to change their policies. Because the wealthiest communities are not really going to be that interested by a small grant amount they can get from the federal government. They're able to pay for their public services just using the money that they collect from their wealthy inhabitants who live in single-family homes. So my perspective is that we need to make sure that there is, in addition to those carrots, that there are some sticks. That we say it is unacceptable to have communities in this country that exclude people of color, that exclude low-income people. And we need to develop land use regulations that allow those people into our communities so that we have more diversity and more equality. So I hope that the Congress is able to work towards that goal and develop both carrots and sticks in you know, the way it moves forward in this type of anti-exclusionary zoning policy. As Congress builds sticks into its local policy strategy, one area where the federal government certainly could take lead is around transportation infrastructure. In the post-war period, the U.S. invested in the interstate highway program, which we're all very familiar with. Most of us use it on a daily or weekly basis just to get around. But the interstate highway system had some negative consequences. And one of those was going directly into city centers. And to do that, those highways had to tear up existing communities. Now, anytime you drive into a city in, in the U.S., the route of the highway almost definitely required the uh, disposition of homes, the evacuation of people from communities, the destruction of businesses and parks and churches. That happened in almost every city in the United States, even relatively small places. There were uh, just a few communities like Washington, D.C. that were able to avoid massive destruction because there were protests at the time. But most other communities throughout the country saw huge tracts of land just taken away from them. And that often meant destroying communities of color and communities where low-income people live. The Biden plan calls for retrofitting or even destroying highways that split communities, with the intention of replacing them with more accessible urban boulevards. The space created by removing highways could be used to build businesses and green spaces, and the new boulevards would connect previously unconnected local community economies but there could be some hiccups in this process. There are some fundamental issues that communities are going to run into. The first is that it's expensive. You can't just take down a highway and rebuild it with new amenities for free. It will cost you know, dozens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars every time you want to do it. The second problem is that right now, in many cases around the country, hundreds of thousands of people driving rely on those highways every day to get to work. And so making sure that we provide people alternatives like good public transportation access or better bike access certainly will require an additional investment. So there's nothing cheap or easy about this type of proposition. But if properly funded, transforming our nation's transportation infrastructure to meet racial justice demands is possible. Freemark says removing highways around many major cities would not limit access from suburbs while expanding access within urban centers. Some cities with no existing transit alternatives to highways may experience a decline in suburban automobile access to cities, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But that could actually have some positive attributes as well. 
you know, that fewer rates of driving means less carbon emissions, which is good for our environment, less air particulates, which is good for people's lungs. And it could mean more people taking advantage of existing and future public transportation. So I think that, you know, there will be required to be a certain mentality change and change in the choices people make on the ground, but there will ultimately be a lot more benefits to the cities that see this type of change than there will be uh, costs. So even if Biden's plans don't end up including all demands, like student loan forgiveness, can it still be effective at shrinking the racial wealth gap? If, the, if we pursue the Biden infrastructure plan, which is to invest much more in public transportation, in walking and biking, then we will be opening up more opportunities for people who rely on those alternatives to the automobile. And that should be indirectly a pathway to increase opportunity, increase access to jobs for people of lower income. So that is one way of reducing the wealth gap. But the Biden plan certainly shouldn't be seen as a panacea. While helpful, Biden's housing and infrastructure provisions would take years, possibly generations, to have a substantial impact. And partisan gridlock may doom more radical attempts to immediately reduce the racial wealth gap. I think we are facing a systemic racialized wealth difference that is very difficult to overcome with any individual policy, right? I mean, there are generational outcomes that are likely to be perpetuated in the coming generations just because of the way wealth is distributed today, which is one of the reasons why some elected officials like Elizabeth Warren have suggested that maybe a wealth tax and others have suggested that maybe reparations for slavery are necessary. That would directly address the vast inequities in wealth that exist in our country today and do so relatively rapidly. That's Yona Freemark, Senior Research Associate at the Urban Institute. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. After Israel's fourth national election in just two years, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest-serving leader in Israel's history, seems to be taking pages from his pal Donald Trump's playbook on handling defeat. He has called his loss a fraud, and the country's security chief has issued a rare warning that there is a potential for January 6th-style mob violence rather than a peaceful transfer of power to his successor, Naftali Bennett, who is, ironically, even more right-wing than Netanyahu. There appears to be a broad loathing for him, which unites the very unlikely anti-Netanyahu coalition, according to Institute for Policy Studies senior fellow Phyllis Bennis. They have one point of unity, which is get rid of Netanyahu. They have no other agreement. And that's why it's very unlikely that even if they manage to keep it together in time for a vote and keep the voters together in the Knesset, which will be next week, if they manage to do that, suddenly Netanyahu is then no longer prime minister and Bennett becomes the prime minister. Uh, but how long this so-called coalition would hold 
is a very dicey proposition. At best, they might be able to pass a budget. That, I think, is unlikely also, but that's probably the one thing they might be able to do. They will not even try to do anything else because they have no agreement. They have parties there that uh, believe that there should never be a Palestinian state, that Palestinians have basically no business being either in Israel or anywhere in what they would like to think of as the land of Israel. But, you know, I think what's more important, Askia, in this is less the logistics of whether this coalition will hold, et cetera, and more, will this make any difference either in terms of Palestinian lives or in terms of relations with the U.S., those two things being rather tied up with each other. And I think the answer is no to the first. Uh, there is not going to be any change in, in Israel's position towards Palestinians living under military occupation in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Palestinians living under military siege in Gaza, Palestinians living as second and third class citizens within the, the 48 uh, borders of Israel, and the 5 million Palestinian refugees that will still not be able to come home. So I don't anticipate any change in the lives of Palestinians. There could be a change slightly in relations with the U.S. Ironically, Netanyahu has, of course, over the years positioned himself as the one who can deliver, the only one who can really deliver uh, continued U.S uncritical support, U.S. protection from any accountability, U.S. military aid to the tune of $3.8 billion a year to start with, and that he's the only one he claims who can guarantee that. In fact, as it turns out, he has become far less popular recently as the criticisms of Israel have emerged beyond social movements and civil society and moved right into the halls of Congress and the uh, uh, in and around the White House. So all of that has changed the position of Netanyahu in Washington, and it may be that some in the White House and in Congress who are looking for ways to look like they are taking seriously the growing opposition to Israeli assaults on, on Palestinians uh, without really changing their position could do so by saying, look, we, the bad guy's gone. Netanyahu's gone. We don't have to worry about him anymore. There's a new prime minister. It's a new beginning. Let's start again. Not acknowledging that this new prime minister is actually significantly to the right of Netanyahu. So what is it that makes Netanyahu such an ogre in the eyes of so many people? I think it's a number of things. I think in Israel, there's a lot of, and it's increasing, it's growing, uh, frustration with his staying in power so long, even as he is ostensibly on trial for a host of corruption charges. Uh, and there's a sense that is, I think, among more and more people there and here as well, that he is doing anything possible to stay in power, not because he thinks he's the best leader for Israel, but because as soon as he's not in power, there's a very good chance he could end up in prison. So this is all about staying out of jail for him. This is very personal. And I think that there's a danger. You know, he's shown himself over the years to be willing to do virtually anything to stay in power. And now with the threat of going to prison looming over his head, that's even stronger. And I think that along with whatever kinds of pressures he brings to bear on 
uh, members of the Knesset who right now are saying they will vote against him to try and persuade them, threaten them, bribe them, whatever it takes to get them to not vote against him. I think people should also keep an eye on the the borders of uh, of Netanyahu's usual foreign policy targets, meaning Gaza, meaning Lebanon, meaning Iran. Is there anything on the horizon that speaks to a better life for Palestinians, a real peace agreement anywhere in the picture? Yes. Ironically enough, I think there is reason for optimism, but it's not immediate. It's not short term uh, on the ground. The longer, the mid midterm and long term uh, positive part, I think, is what we're seeing in this country. The extraordinary shift in the discourse that's been underway for 20 years and, and really very visible for the last couple of years. In the United States, we've seen things we've never seen before, levels of opposition from unexpected quarters. You know, we now have certainly members of, co- of, co- of Congress who are real champions of Palestinian rights. And beyond that, what's in some ways even more important, we're seeing from more centrist members of Congress and members who are progressive on most issues but have been very hesitant on Palestine. And we saw a letter from 12 Jewish members of the House of Representatives calling on Biden for an immediate ceasefire, urging him to demand an immediate ceasefire at the moment when he was refusing to call for a ceasefire. That's never happened before. 29 senators calling for an immediate ceasefire when their president was refusing to do so. 500 uh, former staffers from Biden's campaign, uh, campaign months who were, you know, his people wrote this scathing letter uh, exposing Israeli violations of international law. The use of the term apartheid is on the rise everywhere. The fact that mainstream human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch, like B'Tselem in Israel, the, the most well-known uh, internationally of all of the Israeli human rights groups, are now issuing major reports showing precisely why the term apartheid is the appropriate term. All of these things together mean that the uncritical uh, the, the uncritical support for Israel that has characterized U.S. foreign policy under both parties, all presidents, all congresses, all of that, for so many decades now, is no longer something that can be taken for granted. It's not going to disappear overnight, and it's not going to disappear on its own. But the public discourse is changing so dramatically that people in power and people close to power are recognizing the need to respond in some way to that shift in public opinion. And once that public opinion is recognized to to have shifted in that way, it's going to quickly become much more difficult. You know, we're, we're at, a, at a point, we have been at a point for a couple of years now where there's widespread recognition outside of Washington that it is no longer political suicide to criticize Israel, if it ever was. Now, we're getting closer to a point, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer to the point where it will be some version of political suicide not to criticize Israel. That's what we're moving towards. And once we get there, it's going to become much harder. Phyllis Bennett, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. 
Thank you for shedding light on this complex question for us. Thank you, Askia. Last month, President Biden signed into law the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. Written in response to a sharp rise in anti-Asian racist violence over the past year, the bill aims to speed up prosecution of hate crimes within the Justice Department. A major focus of the bill is to improve the reporting of hate crimes, and for good reason. Sue Goodwin has more. There are two main sources at the Department of Justice for national hate crimes data. Every year, the FBI releases a hate crime statistics report based on crime data voluntarily submitted by over 15,000 law enforcement agencies across the country. In addition to that, there is the National Crime Victimization Survey from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Every year they sample over 200,000 individuals on their experience as a victim of a crime. Becky Monroe is director of the Fighting Hate and Bias Program at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and she explains that when you compare the two reports, it becomes glaringly clear that a vast number of hate crimes go unreported. But if you look at the 2019 data, which is the most recent data available from the FBI, certainly you see continuing increases in hate crimes that are reported. But you also see something really important. For example, in 2019, 86% of agencies that submit data, they didn't report a single hate crime to the FBI. 86%. And that includes over 70 cities with populations over 100,000. It's ludicrous, right? Right. In fact, in 2019, participating law enforcement agencies across the country reported a total of 7,314 hate crime incidents to the FBI, affecting 8,000 812 victims. So how does that measure up to the fact that more than 250,000 people on average report being victims of hate crimes each year, according to estimates from the National Crime Victimization Survey? So the same Department of Justice is saying the official data we're getting from law enforcement agencies is that there's between seven and 8,000 hate crimes occurring, but we actually know it's closer to 250. I say all of that because when you don't have data, you cannot focus resources, not only in terms of investigations and prosecutions, but also in terms of supporting the communities that are targeted for hate. So how do you account for this staggering gulf between the number of hate crimes that actually happen and those reported to law enforcement? It's what the Justice Department itself calls the hate crime disparity gap. Becky Monroe says there are many reasons beginning with how hate crimes are defined across legal jurisdictions. Simply put, a hate crime is an incident that must include both hate and a crime. For the purpose and identification at the federal level, a hate crime is a violent or property crime that is motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against a race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity. But most hate crimes are prosecuted at the state level, 
and then it's up to states to decide what should be considered a hate crime, and many states disagree. I think the important thing to note, specifically with respect to the ways in which state hate crimes differ, is that different people are covered. There are far too many states that are not inclusive. For example, in far too many states, people who are targeted for a hate crime on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity are not covered under the current law. Of course, that's not the only reason why hate crimes go unreported. It's also about what actually happens when a hate crime takes place, how police on the scene respond, and how the community responds. One of the things I think is important to start from the outset is that we need to recognize that for many communities, in particular communities who are targeted for hate, they may not feel safe reporting hate crimes to law enforcement. And that is because of an ongoing history of violence by law enforcement against some communities who are targeted for hate, including, for example, communities of color. In other cases, for example, immigrant communities may fear reporting to law enforcement. One of the many devastating things that happened during the Trump administration was a push for local law enforcement to almost serve as, as immigration authorities. And I will say there was a resounding objection to that, including from many law enforcement officials who recognized it meant that people would not feel safe reporting any kind of crime, including hate crimes. So one piece is just a a fear of reporting. And what happens on the other side of this equation? Becky Monroe says all too often, police as well fail to report hate crimes when they are called to the scene. If they do not have the training or if there is bias in terms of how they respond, then they very well may not report it. One of the things I have done both when I was at the Department of Justice and then after I left when I was working at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights is to partner with other organizations, including the Matthew Shepard Foundation and others, to conduct law enforcement training on hate crimes, on both identifying hate crimes, but importantly, working closely with communities to make sure that communities understand what hate crimes laws are, what their protections are, how they can report, how they can report safely, working with local community organizations. So, for example, if you are targeted for a hate crime and do not feel safe going to law enforcement, where do you go for support? So really, it's important that we think about the ways in which entire communities are impacted by hate, but also the ways in which entire communities respond. Becky Monroe is optimistic that the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act will make a difference because prior to passage, it was amended to include the Jabara Hire No Hate Act. That bill is named after Khaled Jabara, a Lebanese-American man, and Heather Hire, a white woman, both killed in clear acts of hate. Yet neither murder was reported as a hate crime. Key provisions from the Jabara Hire No Hate Act aim to improve hate crime reporting to stop that kind of failure from happening again. One of the important things that happened in this Jabara Hire No Hate Act, which again was included within the COVID-19 hate crime bill that was signed into law, is that it acknowledges the importance of that data, acknowledges the importance of improving that reporting, and then has specific provisions for state and local law enforcement agencies to improve the data and to improve their reporting. And some of that includes training for law enforcement. Some of that includes increasing accessibility for communities that are targeted for hate to report. Becky Monroe says there's another important aspect of including the Jabara Hire Hate Act into the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, and it's this. On the way these bills came together, 
I think it is a real sign of the ways in which a coalition of civil rights organizations, civil rights leaders, victims, and survivor families came together to say, we are going to stand together. The Asian American community insisted on making the COVID-19 hate crime bill a more inclusive bill that would help support all communities. And it supports everyone. And so I think, you know, one of the things we have seen time and time again is that there is a a white supremacist narrative, really, um, that is trying to divide communities of color. The reality is when it came time for, for, for it to matter in terms of getting a law passed, people said, no, you're not going to exclude these different communities. We are going to stand together. There is still a lot to be done in the fight against hate crimes in America, and it's important to remember why the battle is so important. It's bad enough that a hate crime can be devastating and even deadly for an individual who is the target, but the damage is even bigger than that. That's right. A hate crime may appear to target one individual, but it really does end up terrorizing and targeting entire communities. When someone is targeted for a hate crime on the basis of, of who they are, who they love, you quickly realize that it's, send, it's trying to send a message. It's sending a message to an entire community that they are not safe and that they do not belong in a community. And that is why it is so important that we have a robust way of both identifying hate crimes, but also responding more effectively to those hate crimes. And that that response include not only investigation, not only prosecution, but also include getting resources and support to the communities that are targeted and listening to those communities for them to tell us what they need. Becky Monroe, director of the Fighting Hate and Bias program at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. This morning, we continue our coverage of the labor movement's revival, both locally and nationally. This revival is impacting corners of the economy previously untouched by labor unrest, from Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, to white-collar workers in the District of Columbia. One local organizer has plans to fuel that expansion. Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has the details. The last five years, from the election of Donald Trump through the coronavirus pandemic, have permanently reshaped American politics. Strategic grassroots organizing is in vogue, and Alyssa Fetter wants to make sure it stays that way. Fetter is executive director of Rising Organizers, a D.C.-based grassroots training group that has recently turned its attention to a wave of white-collar worker organizing. Founded in the wake of the 2016 election, Rising Organizers provides easy access to basic organizing training for movement newcomers, and Fetter hopes their new labor-focused curriculum will boost local unionization efforts in unorganized industries. But whether in labor or in electoral politics, the Rising Organizers' training strategy is a winner. Rising Organizers was founded two weeks after the 2016 election, because everyone has their ways of dealing with stress, and mine apparently is to start very large uh, training operations. And 
we started it because we saw how progressives were trying to mobilize, but how many of them also didn't know where to start or how to act strategically. And it was a period of time where if you had a resource, no matter what that resource was, you really wanted to put it to work if you were a progressive and the resource that I and the other folks who helped me start this uh, had was that we knew how to train. So we put up this training called Organizing for Non-Organizers. I thought 20 people would show up and I would feel like I'd done my part and I'd, I'd go home. Um, but 150 people showed up and then 200 people showed up and then 120 people showed up. And it just became very clear in the first six months that we were onto something that needed to be solved, that there was no one who was specifically creating spaces explicitly for new people, explicitly to get them on board and explicitly to put them in rooms with each other, to learn together, to have an open space where you weren't expected to know anything um, except for your values, which is the most important part. Yeah, this, this kind of brings me back to my own organizing days when the the focus was you got to organize the unorganized. If we just mm -hmm. talk to folks that are already part of movements or organizations and loop, the, loop them into our stuff, we just get spread way too thin. Um, right. But obviously the tough part is getting those unorganized folks into the space. And I'm curious, how did, how did you do that? Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because your story is a really good one because as an organizer myself, I hear people talking about that all the time. Oh, I wish people would be more engaged. I wish they'd be more involved. Even just a base, I wish they would vote more. But there's no real analysis of the barriers that stand between people and their political participation. We have some, under just to be a total nerd for a second, we have some understanding of, for example, why people don't vote, which is the easiest metric to, to, to measure. And the most common reason that people give is that they think their vote doesn't matter. And that is part of a much broader system of people in this country feeling deeply disaffected by a political system that is not responsive to them. They, I don't think they're wrong. Um, but I think that many of us who are in the political space think that they need to figure that out for themselves or we need to show up at their doorstep and beg for their vote, rather than taking a look at the broader systemic problem that leads people to think that their political participation doesn't matter. This is something that has always made me a little bonkers. I, I wanted to solve for that problem for a, a, a long time, and Rising Organizers really created the opportunity to do so. To your question of how did we do that, um, I think a lot of it was the right place at the right time in the right city, right city for it. I think more than that, um, and the reason the organization has been able to continue is because this problem is as yet unsolved. There are not enough resources out there for people who know that there's a problem in their communities and don't know how to fix it. That was a really long answer. But I just, I just really wanna tell people to stop freaking out about voting. I mean, I want them to freak out about voting, but I want them to like think about why it's a problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than just kind of saying, oh, people don't vote. Why won't they right. vote? Right. Right. Like, let's stop lamenting. Not to be melodramatic, but it kind of reminds me of the Joe Hill thing. Don't mourn, organize. Right. Like, mm -hmm. let's not just be sad about people not voting. Let's let's or not or not just be sad about people not forming unions or whatever else it might be. Let's actually go out and, and do something about do it. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, you launched this labor training recently. And, you know, obviously, I think 
this problem of folks knowing there's a problem but not knowing what to do is is not just true in like the political world, but obviously true in the labor movement world. And we've seen a lot of revived interest in the labor movement recently. How did this training come together? What prompted it? And what kind of skills are you trying to get folks to have? At the beginning of the pandemic, one of our leaders, Emily, was a, a fitness coach at Solid Core, which is a very bougie fitness studio in uh, not just DC, but all, all over the country. And when the, um, around a few weeks into the pandemic, things shut down and then some things started to open up again. And Solid Core wanted for all of their coaches to return with basically no safety protocols whatsoever. The clients didn't have to be masked. There was no uh, rigorous cleaning protocol. The coaches were cleaning themselves. They're not professionals uh, in that respect. And there was no air circulation, just a lot of issues that were going to present themselves in an airborne, an airborne pandemic. And Emily started talking to folks about what it would look like to organize to create some better working conditions under COVID. And since then, she's filed complaints with the National Labor Relations Board, which is a resource that she was pointed to by her fellow Rising Organizers alums. But the thing, and, and she's been very successful and won a lot. But that entire effort was really born out of Emily was in a place where she could use skills that she had learned that we taught her. It wasn't, you know, if in another universe, the same Emily sees the same situation and just doesn't do anything about it because she doesn't know how. But because Emily was in our fellowship program, Emily had all the skills that she needed to start having these organizing conversations and because she's a member of our organization and our leadership, she had continued resources to keep learning and building her power at work to become successful. And so we really wanted to build off of that, off of the idea that you just never know when you're going to need these skills and where having these skills at work is a particular circumstance where knowing how to organize is really, really helpful. Uh, and not a, a lot of people know where to start with that. So we'll help. Kind of makes me think that, I mean, clearly you're not, you didn't train everybody at Solid Core, but you trained one person right. and she was able to sort of be a seed in a way for the, for the growth there. Right. Is that kind of the vision here is that you, you train key people and they'll, they'll go out in, the, in whatever they are doing in their lives and sort of infect with the organizing spirit, whatever it is that they're doing? I like that. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think what makes us um, interesting and special and unique is that we get to invest in the people who then go invest in everybody else. So, you know, Emily organized, there's 400 solid core coaches. Emily organized 400, not, she didn't organize those 400 people, but she is organizing a community of, of hundreds. Um, and she's not alone. A lot of our alums are organizing large communities. A lot of them are organizing in elections, which impacts thousands of people. A lot of them are organizing in mutual aid right now. Um, and some of them are building new movements um, like Emily and being able to really invest in their, in their communities, no matter where that community is. And that's the joy that I get out of Rising Organizers is that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. It is impossible for me to have all the answers. But what I can do is I can provide a set of skills to people who are directly impacted, who 
do understand their own lived experiences and their community's experiences, and they can go take those skills back and do something really impactful and important. And that's the thing that I think that organizing is often missing, and the thing I'm very glad that we're able to bring. That's Alyssa Fetter, Executive Director of Rising Organizers. To learn more, visit risingorganizers.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. Hot temperatures dominate our seasonal weather forecast this week. But in his time, trumpeter Miles Davis presided over the birth of the cool. From his Porgy and Bess suite, that was Miles' version of 
summertime. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, keep your social distance, and you may want to still keep wearing a mask for now. Thank you for listening, and thanks for supporting WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.